The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature podcast. Today, we're going to continue our journey by taking a deeper look at the Upanishads and the surprising personal revelation that I've had. But first, you may have noticed that the numbering has jumped from episode 11 to episode 27. Don't worry, you haven't missed anything. We're just renumbering to make things easier for you. This show is about you, people. Oh, sure, it's me sitting in a studio, talking into a machine, but it's really about you. That's the magic. Now, let's dig into some ancient mystic writings and my own surprising revelation. That's here, that's right now, that's today's show. Upanishads Part 2 on The History of Literature. Episode 27, Upanishads, Part 2. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay. Let's start with a quick reminder of where we left things off with the Upanishads Part 1. The Upanishads were generated thousands of years ago in India. This is going back to roughly a thousand BC or a few hundred years after that. They're part of what's called the Vedas, which are a set of chants or hymns that were handed down in oral tradition. Many of these describe sacrificial rituals and other religious ceremonies of a priestly caste. These priests were sponsored by courts. This was a period where the Aryans had swept into northern India, encountering and clashing with the traditions of a people who had been living there already for thousands of years and who had their own rich spiritual development already well underway. The Upanishads are different from the other Vedas. The Upanishads are more concerned with knowledge, what we know and what we can know about human life, the human spirit or soul, and its connection to the universe. How was the universe created? How did something come from nothing? What drives it today? Along with questions like that are questions about the soul, or self, or individual consciousness. What is consciousness? What is hope? What is love? What is thought? I'm sitting here, in my body, 
thinking about different things. What do my thoughts do to the universe? How am I a part of the universe? How is the universe a part of me? We have layers and layers of science plastered over questions like this today, but I don't think we have answers that end these kinds of inquiries. What came before the Big Bang? Do we have any idea? And what about spooky action at a distance? Are you familiar with this? Einstein's phrase. It's also called quantum entanglement. Particles, atomic particles, separated by huge distances, act in accordance with one another without there being communication or any sort of conventional connection between the two. Something that happens here affects something that happens over there, and it happens immediately with no connection that we currently understand. How is that possible? Science may tell us someday. In the meantime, here's what we know. The universe is strange and operates on many levels we don't and cannot know. The Upanishads describe a force that's smaller than the smallest and larger than the largest. Is it a stretch to say that energy, or something even more fundamental than energy, is out there waiting for science to find it? We can also call it the Lord or God. Upanishads call it Brahman. We can say that it's all part of one thing. This is a great theme of the Upanishads, that there is a unity. All things are connected. All things are part of one whole. That's one of the core discoveries that seekers must find. Last time I talked about my own experience diving into these texts and how these beliefs and teachings appealed to me. I suggested that renounce and enjoy the key theme of the Isha Upanishad, which is often listed first of the dozen or so Upanishads most frequently cited. I suggested my own struggles with renounce and enjoy and my admiration. Yes, renounce everything that does not matter. Enjoy the time we have while we're here. Enjoy the experience. Enjoy being alive and all that comes with it. Very appealing. We'll look at some more themes of the Upanishads today, like death, the concepts of Brahman and Atman, and we'll look at the literary qualities, the wonderful metaphors and imagery, the moments of humor, and I'll give you my own epiphany, which I think may surprise you, or at least it should, since it surprised me. But first, let me ask you something else. This may test whether the Upanishads are for you, whether you should take a look at them for yourself. Imagine you're sitting on a train on your way to work. I do this every single day, along with hundreds of my fellow commuters. There's a blank look on your face. This is 20 minutes of dead time for you. Nothing to do. You're not reading or listening to anything. All you're doing is thinking. Now, imagine that you spend those 20 minutes thinking negative thoughts. How irritating your job is how much you hate where you live, the annoying way the train is crowded and slow. Imagine you're thinking only about how long the commute is and how much you hate politicians and how the news is always terrible and there's so much dirt and germs everywhere and you didn't sleep well last night and the weekend is miles away and you'll probably get sick soon enough. Then your train stops. You go on your way. 
That's scenario A. Here's scenario B. Same thing. You have the same day before you get on the train, the exact same day, including all the same thoughts. And you have the same day after you get off the train. The exact same things happen to you, and you think the exact same thoughts. That's the hypothetical. And the thoughts you have while you're on the train don't affect the thoughts you have while you're off the train at all. Imagine that. But imagine that during the scenario B ride, you actually think positive thoughts instead of negative ones. How much you love the mornings, how good everyone looks, how eager you are to get to work and be productive, how much you love this city and your family and your friends, and how the very clattering of wheels on the tracks reminds you of all the great people you know and all the fascinating work that they all do, and how amazing it is that you can travel for miles underground and resurface in another spot in the middle of a bustling city. The only difference in this thought experiment is that you had 20 minutes of positive thoughts instead of negative ones. And I'm going to be very strict about this condition. You can't say that scenario B is better because you'll be more productive at work and more kind and so forth. Let's say you're exactly as productive in either scenario. You do exactly the same things before and after you get on the train. Think exactly the same thoughts. The only difference is that the thoughts in your mind during that time period are different. Do those thoughts matter? That's the question. Is the universe better because you had positive thoughts and not negative ones? Here's another thought experiment, a quick one. You're in the train car again, surrounded by the blank looks on the faces of all your passengers. In scenario A, all the passengers are thinking negative thoughts. They hate you, in fact, although you wouldn't know it from the way they look. They hate you and they hate each other and they hate themselves. They are inwardly boiling with irritation and venom and selfishness and hatred. They're thinking poisonous thoughts all around you. In scenario B... Same blank looks on their faces, but they're all eager to be going where they're going. They feel good about themselves, and they feel kindness and compassion toward one another. But their behavior is completely the same. Is scenario B better? Now, it's not fair saying, oh, sure, because if someone has a heart attack, they'll be more likely to help. No, I'm controlling the experiment. The people are the same before and after the train ride, no matter which one you choose. The blank looks are all you get from them, no matter what. Everything on the outside, everything external, is exactly the same. The only difference is that one train ride has minds full of bitterness and negative thoughts. On the other train ride, you're surrounded by invisible feelings of joy. Do you care? Does being surrounded by thoughts matter? Does it change the energy for you somehow? If you say yes, or if you say you think so, and you're curious as to why that would be, the Upanishads may be for you. They may not answer all your questions, but they will initiate your exploration. At the very least, if you're like me, I'd take the car full of joy, of course, every time, then you'd have to ask yourself why it matters. Do emotions exist somewhere? 
Do we contribute to them? Do we add to them just through our minds, through our mental energy? Does it matter on the moon if someone on earth falls in love? I kind of think it does. I kind of think it does. So you can see why I'm fascinated by the Upanishads, why I fell into them years and years ago, although I was really swallowed up by Tibetan Buddhism due to some experiences in Tibet that I won't go into now. I had it all before me. All these ideas, they were all possible for me. It was like my friend who tried opium in Thailand at one of the opium dens they have there on one of those tours. He thought, I love this. If I had two lives, I could give one of them to opium. But that was his choice. It was all or nothing. He knew he couldn't just make opium a small part of his life. It would consume him. And that was kind of how I felt in some ways. The Upanishads, the wisdom in them, the commitment to understanding the universe, the renouncing and enjoying, the path of deep meditation to seek a kind of comprehension. I could give my life over to it, or I could reject it. In the end, I opted for a kind of middle path. I'll tell you why. Not yet. Let's hold off on that. Oh, that phrase, (laughs) not yet, reminds me of another great spiritual text in the Christian tradition. Augustine, in his Confessions, great book if you haven't read it, he talks about, we'll get to that I'm sure in our journey, he talks about being a young man full of oats, as they say, and how he sensed that he was drawn to his mother's religion, Christianity but that that religion would disapprove of his behavior, his licentiousness. And while he was in this state of inner conflict, he prayed, God, give me chastity, but not yet. (laughs) It's such a marvelous phrase, so human. It's my favorite thing in Augustine's writings, and there are a lot of great things in Augustine's writings. Give me chastity, but not yet. There's a passage that reminds me of that in the Upanishads as well. Many of the Upanishads are filled with teachers. That's one of the the great tropes. Teachers and students, and of course, teachers and students can take many forms. Sometimes it's kings and wise men. Sometimes husbands and wives. Fathers and sons. Teaching is revered, even required, one might say. You can only get the secrets from a teacher in the Upanishads. As I mentioned last time, the word Upanishad itself means sitting down near. Sitting down near someone who knows, sitting at their feet, listening. You must meditate yourself and you must follow all their principles, but in the end, you must learn from people who know. There's a great story about the Beatles in India when they were staying with the Maharishi. Apparently, there was a chance to accompany the Maharishi in a helicopter as he traveled to the airport or something, but there was only room for one. All the Beatles wanted to go, and they were all scrambling to get on that helicopter with their guru. But John pushed the hardest. He was the one who got to take the trip. Afterwards, Paul asked him why he had been so eager to go, and John said, I thought he might slip me the answer. 
It's such a good story. It comes straight out of the Upanishads. I mean, it's, it's what you take from the Upanishads. Find a guru, someone who is farther down the spiritual path than you, someone better at renouncing and enjoying, someone who has themselves become closer to knowing, to understanding how we are all part of the same basic spirit. This is the connection we need to make, according to the Upanishads. Everything about you, your body, the thoughts you think, the hope you have, the love you feel, is Atman. Everything else, all the other life, the other moods, the other thoughts, the other existence, everything external to you is Brahman. And here's the connection. Atman is Brahman. That's not something you can just know intellectually, according to the Upanishads. There's a way of feeling it, of truly understanding it, that is only aspirational for most of us. That's what we're working toward. That's the life you can give over to the Upanishads, working toward that. If you get there, it's called moksha, or emancipation, liberation, release. Release from what? Samsara, the cycle of death and rebirth. Now, I got off track. We were talking about Augustine and his give me chastity, but not yet. I said there was something in the Upanishads that reminded me of this. It comes in one of the teacher-student exchanges. In this one, a king named Janaka has announced that he will be giving a thousand cows to the wisest of all the sages in his kingdom. All the pundits gather. One wise man named Yajnavalkya immediately tells his son to go get the cows and start driving them home. The others sitting around are astonished at his hubris. How can Yajnavalkya declare himself to be the wisest? And Yajnavalkya says, I bow down to the wisest, but I want those cows. <laughs> renounce, my friends, renounce. But also, it's okay to want the cows, or it's human to want them. Let's put it that way. Yajnavalkya has much wisdom to impart, and he sets forth much of what I've been describing above. It's delivered in a Q&A format, like Plato, except unlike Plato, this isn't Socrates pretending to know nothing and then distorting logic and definitions to make his points. My apologies, Socrates. We'll deal with you later. Rather, Yajnavalkya, the stories of Yajnavalkya show a king posing seemingly unanswerable questions to a sage who responds in vivid, poetic language. The metaphors here are wonderful. Let me read you a passage. This is from the translation by Eknath Eswaran. I think it cost $6 or something on Amazon. There's a link to it on my website. Really, it's worth getting this book. It's a fast read, though you don't need to read it straight through. There are flashes of insight in every one of the Upanishads he's chosen. Take your time with these. They're truly wonderful, and his translation is excellent. Here's a bit from Yajnavalkya. Here he is, speaking with his wife, Matriya, who has asked him to explain his illuminations to her. The self has to be realized. Hear about this self and meditate upon him. When you hear about the self, 
meditate upon the self, and finally realize the self, you come to understand everything in life. The universe confuses those who regard it as separate from the self. Gods and creatures confuse those who regard them as separate from the self. Everything confuses those who regard things as separate from the self. No one can understand the sounds of a drum without understanding both drum and drummer, nor the sounds of a conch without understanding both the conch and its blower. As clouds of smoke arise from a fire laid with damp fuel, even so from the supreme have issued forth all the Vedas, history, arts, sciences, poetry, aphorisms, and commentaries. All these are the breath of the Supreme. As there can be no water without the sea, no touch without the skin, no smell without the nose, no taste without the tongue, no form without the eye, no sound without the ear, no thought without the mind, no wisdom without the heart, no work without hands, no walking without feet, no scriptures without the word, so there can be nothing without the self. As a lump of salt thrown in water dissolves and cannot be taken out again, though wherever we taste the water it is salty, even so, beloved, the separate self dissolves in the sea of pure consciousness, infinite and immortal. Separateness arises from identifying the self with the body, which is made up of the elements. When this physical identification dissolves, there can be no more separate self. This is what I want to tell you, beloved. And his wife responds, I am bewildered when you say there is then no separate self. Yajnavalkya replies, Reflect on what I have said, beloved, and you will not be confused. As long as there is separateness, One sees another as separate from oneself, hears another as separate from oneself, smells another as separate from oneself, speaks to another as separate from oneself, thinks of another as separate from oneself, knows another as separate from oneself. But when the self is realized as the indivisible unity of life, who can be seen by whom? Who can be heard by whom? Who can be smelled by whom? Who can be spoken to by whom? Who can be thought of by whom? Who can be known by whom? Matri, my beloved, how can the knower ever be known? It's wonderfully accessible and expressive. There's so much here to absorb, so much richness of metaphor and idea. Here's another passage from Yajnavalkya when he's talking with the king. Janaka asks him to describe the self, and Yajnavalkya says, The self, pure awareness, shines as the light within the heart, surrounded by the senses. Only seeming to think, seeming to move, the self neither sleeps, nor wakes, nor dreams. When the self takes on a body, he seems to assume the body's frailties and limitations. But when he sheds the body at the time of death, The self leaves all these behind. The human being has two states of consciousness, one in this world, the other in the next. But there's a third state between them. Not unlike the world of dreams, 
in which we are aware of both worlds with their sorrows and joys. When a person dies, it is only the physical body that dies. That person lives on in a non-physical body which carries the impressions of his past life. It is these impressions that determine his next life. In this intermediate state, he makes and dissolves impressions by the light of the self. In that third state of consciousness, there are no chariots, no horses drawing them or roads on which to travel, but he makes up his own chariots, horses, and roads. In that state, there are no joys or pleasures, but he makes up his own joys and pleasures. In that state, there are no lotus ponds, no lakes, no rivers, but he makes up his own lotus ponds, lakes, and rivers. It is he who makes up all these from the impressions of his past or waking life. It is said of these states of consciousness that in the dreaming state, when one is sleeping, the shining self, who never dreams, who is ever awake, watches by his own light the dreams woven out of past deeds and present desires. In the dreaming state, when one is sleeping, the shining self keeps the body alive with the vital force of prana and wanders wherever he wills. In the dreaming state, when one is sleeping, the shining self assumes many forms, eats with friends, indulges in sex, these fearsome spectacles. But he is not affected by anything because he is detached and free. And after wandering here and there in the state of dreaming, enjoying pleasures and seeing good and evil, he returns to the state from which he began. As a great fish swims between the banks of a river as it likes, so does the shining self move between the states of dreaming and waking. As an eagle, weary after soaring in the sky, folds its wings and flies down to rest in its nest, so does the shining self enter the state of dreamless sleep, where one is freed from all desires. The self is free from desire, free from evil, free from fear. As a man in the arms of his beloved is not aware of what is without and what is within, so a person in union with the self is not aware of what is without and what is within, for in that unitive state all desires find their perfect fulfillment. There is no other desire that needs to be fulfilled, and one goes beyond sorrow. In that unitive state, there is neither father nor mother, neither worlds nor gods nor even scriptures. In that state, there is neither thief nor slayer, neither low caste nor high, neither monk nor ascetic. The self is beyond good and evil, beyond all the suffering of the human heart. In that unitive state, one sees without seeing, for there is nothing separate from him. Smells without smelling, for there is nothing separate from him. Tastes without tasting, speaks without speaking, hears without hearing, touches without touching, for there is nothing separate from him. Thinks without thinking, knows without knowing, for there is nothing separate from him. Where there is separateness, one sees another, smells another, tastes another, speaks to another, hears another touches another, thinks of another, knows another. But where there is unity, one without a second, 
That is the world of Brahman. This is the supreme goal of life, the supreme treasure, the supreme joy. Those who do not seek this supreme goal live on but a fraction of this joy. When I was young, growing up in a Christian tradition, I tried to understand heaven, tried to imagine what it was like. I'm not sure I ever heard a description of what I was believing to be heaven that's closer to what Yajnavalkya has just described. Here he is describing death. As a caterpillar, having come to the end of one blade of grass, draws itself together and reaches out for the next, so the self, having come to the end of one life and dispelled all ignorance, gathers in his faculties and reaches out from the old body to a new That's beautiful. If you've ever held the hand of a loved one while the person was nearing their last few minutes and seconds on earth, you've maybe seen this in action, this gathering up of the faculties, this getting ready. Now by taking excerpts of these, one thing that I'm not really conveying is the drama of the dialogues, the back and forth, the spirit and the energy that they have. And if you skim over these, they may strike you as truisms. But if you go into them fully, you have a different experience. As literature, these exchanges are excellent. Sometimes they can seem repetitive. There aren't thousands of different truths here. There are a handful of them expressed in different ways. We are all different listeners. We all understand things differently. We all come to realization through a different path. What I like about the Upanishads is that they're not judgmental. Really admirable for them is scripture. They're not critical. They're not angry. They're not domineering. They come humbly and in a spirit of wanting to help. These books say, let's not have a train ride full of negative thoughts. Let's live surrounded by a different mental landscape. Let's live in a world of joy. Now, here's a passage that T.S. Eliot loved. I'm really only scratching the surface of these Upanishads. I encourage you to buy the book and get them all yourselves. Dip into it whenever you are feeling like your soul needs a little boost. One more quick one before I give you my own discovery. This is called What the Thunder Said. It has the simplicity of a fairy tale. Listen to how easy the story goes down and how wonderful its message is. What the Thunder Said The children of Prajapati, the creator, gods, human beings, and asuras, the godless, lived with their father as students. When they had completed the allotted period, the gods said, Venerable one, please teach us. Prajapati answered with one syllable, Da. Have you understood? he asked. 
Yes, they said. You have told us, Damyada, be self-controlled. You have understood, he said. Then the human beings approached. Venerable one, please teach us. Prajapati answered with one syllable. Da. Have you understood? He asked. Yes, they said. You have told us, Dada. Give. You have understood, he said. Then the godless approached. Venerable one, please teach us. Prajapati answered with the same syllable. Da. Have you understood? He asked. Yes, they said. You have told us, Dayadvam. Be compassionate. You have understood, he said. The heavenly voice of the thunder repeats this teaching. Da, da, da. Be self-controlled. Give. Be compassionate. As wisdom that strikes me as excellent, as literature, it's hard to beat. So this is what I was faced with all those years ago. How far down this path should I go? Should I stay in India, sign up with the teacher, devote my life to the pursuit of moksha? And today, as I fell back into Indian literature, the same opportunity presented itself. Should I pursue it? I'm not going to move to India. I have too many obligations now. But I could introduce more moksha in my life. What are the downsides? I told you before, I've had it with teachers. But what about the meditation? Should I attempt to reduce the mental clutter? Pascal made a famous wager. If you believe in God, you might go to heaven and avoid hell. If you don't believe in God, you get nothing. But why not bet that God exists? What about this one? If you believe you will be happier through renouncing and enjoying, then why not do it? And if you do it a little, why not a lot? Why not all? Why not give your whole self to that? What would I lose if I did that? Remember my thought experiment? If you think positive thoughts, you can change the world. Your very positivity is better than negativity. I believe that to be true. I genuinely do. So what's the problem? What's stopping me? Why not make that wager? What would I lose? Here's what I decided all those years ago. And here's how I feel now. I might lose some of life's richness. I don't want subtraction. I want addition. I want to be absorbed in the greatness of human existence. All the details of it. All the messy, complicated details. I want a train full of humanity. Not all joy and not all negativity. But as rich as life can be. The woman who's getting married and the guy who's about to go bankrupt sitting next to each other, thinking they're different thoughts. I want to listen to Mozart and watch this documentary on Keith Richards. I want to binge on Breaking Bad and the man in the high castle and making a murderer. I want to be angry sometimes and live on the edge sometimes and feel grief as hard as I can when that strikes me. I want to be great sometimes, not just mediocre. And I want to fail too and be deeply humble and outrageously proud and shockingly vile and agonizingly humiliated. I don't want one human emotion to govern, not just guilt, 
or fear or shame or lust. I want all of them to govern, to compete for the governorship of my soul, my Atman. Maybe my Atman isn't part of the Brahman. Maybe it's just my own little corner of the universe, and it's mine to fill with a million ideas, not just the one. Maybe dull edges aren't my thing here in my little soul. Maybe I need sharp edges to keep me alert and alive. And this was the epiphany. This is what I realized a few days ago, that it was literature that had persuaded me of this the first time. I had forgotten why I had left the path, but there it was, plain as day, as if I had recorded it in a diary that I had just found. I remembered now. It was literature. Literature did me in. Back then I decided I love books and ideas and thoughts way too much to let any single pursuit rule me for very long. Look at what I love in the passages that I've chosen before. My favorite passages in the religious text give me chastity, but not yet. And give me understanding, liberation from earthly cares. Let me know that myself is part of the universe and vice versa. And everything and everyone flows around me and through me and is me. And hey, I want those cows. That's me. I want the books. I want the ideas. I want them all. Okay, that's it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you have everything you want right now, or not yet, as the case may be. Here's what I want. Feedback. How about a five-star rating at iTunes? It only takes a second. Or hey, leave a comment. Send me an email. Jack Wilson, that's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson, author, at gmail.com. Or tell your friends to give us a listen. I bow down to the wisest, but I want those listeners. That's it for this episode. We're going to head off to the Ramayana next, a world of epic poetry, more heroes, and a special cameo by a monkey king. It's good stuff. It's all out there, people living in the pages, and right here on this podcast. The History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me on this part of the journey. And I hope to see you on the next part as well.